Presidential administrations can often take some time to work out the kinks. It can take time to figure out an effective way to govern the country. But what we've seen in the early days of the Trump administration, things like infighting among high-ranking White House staff, competing ideologies among Trump's closest advisors, even the president publicly criticizing his own chief strategist, all of those things left us with some questions. Can Trump effectively govern with all this tumult in the White House? And how much of this is by design? Also, how much of this is an indication of larger problems to come? In response to questions about White House tensions, Press Secretary Sean Spicer said, The idea isn't to have one set of thought and policy flowing through there. It's to give the president the best advice possible, but that once the president makes a decision that the team is on board 100 percent to make sure that we do what's been the best interest of the country and fulfill the agenda that he's laid out. I, I think the president wants to have um, a, a series of ideas and, and thoughts put forward to him. That's how he's going to make the best opinion or best decision possible for this country. So how does Sean Spicer's explanation hold up against history? I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Now, later in this episode, you'll hear from a historian about how some of the infighting and turmoil compares to past administrations. But you'll also hear what I found to be an incredibly compelling interview with one of Trump's former aides, Sam Nunberg. Sam tells us exactly what it's like to work for Donald Trump. So stick around for that. But in the meantime, I have our very talented White House bureau chief, Phil Rucker, here. Phil covers the Trump administration every day, and he is really the best in the biz. Phil, I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay. So, Phil, can you just explain here the lay of the land, sort of the different groups within the White House that are seemingly competing for power? And is it just this uh, advisor, Jared Kushner, versus chief strategist Steve Bannon? Or are there other groups at play? Well, the power dynamic in Trump's White House is constantly evolving. It's sort of like a living organism. You never quite know uh, how it's going to take shape. And at the moment, we see a real divide between Jared Kushner, the senior advisor, the president's son-in-law, and Steve Bannon, who's the chief strategist, the sort of uh, nationalist, populist force uh, within the White House, the real intellectual um, pillar in Trump's circle. And a lot of the other advisors are, are kind of filling in around there. And it's an ideological divide, really, at the heart. It's a divide between uh, the people who want business-friendly policies, who think more globally and, frankly, more traditionally. That's Kushner. That's Gary Cohn, the former head of Goldman Sachs, who's now the director of the National Economic Council. It's also Reince Priebus, who ran the Republican Party and is now the White House chief of staff. And, and there, against Steve Bannon, who is really trying to pull uh, Trump to the nationalist um, core uh, policies that he campaigned on uh, that really revved up his base around the country. It seems that you have gained a lot of insight into Trump's management style in the White House, but also perhaps Trump's management style as a businessman. Can you speak at all to how what you're seeing now reflected in Trump's behavior in the White House, how, how it may be an indication of how he ran his businesses? Yeah, you know, Trump is not somebody who likes a lot of order and structure. He likes people to be able to float in and out. He he likes chaos. He he feels like he and his team thrive uh, off of a chaotic environment. And you see that sometimes in the White House. I mean, just look at the Oval Office, for example, which in, in past presidencies is a, a place where 
you know, very few aides are allowed in during the day. You sort of schedule an appointment. If the president summons you, you come, but you don't just flow in and out freely. But on a given hour at, at Trump's White House, so many aides will come in and out. Kellyanne Conway will come in and out. Omarosa will come in and out. Uh, Reince Priebus, all of these senior aides have walk-in privileges uh, in the Oval Office. That's in part because Trump uh, wants advice from them. He solicits as much advice as he can get, uh, but also because he likes being around people. He likes to have people always present, always around him. And you know, somebody who has firsthand uh, experience working for Donald Trump is Sam Nunberg. He's a, a political strategist. He worked for Trump for many years, helping him sort of chart his path to the presidency. He was the key uh, strategist helping Donald Trump figure out what to do before he ran for president. He fell out of grace with, with the candidate, of course, and was fired from the campaign, but has remained close with him and his team. And we spoke to him for a new perspective. One thing about Donald Trump, I don't know if I'm ever going to have another boss like this, he's able to make you excel and push yourself. Part of it is because you want to please him. He's such a gregarious guy. But the other part of it is because he'll tell you, like, there'll, there'll be times when he'll be like, Sam, what is this? This isn't what I expect from you. Or he'll be like, this is great. You know, keep it up. And you're always going to have frequent judge of your performance from him. I think one thing he's also very good at in a positive way is playing his people off of each other. So, you know, you're always going to want to stay on your feet that way. And I think he's probably does that in the White House as well. And Sam, let's dive in on that a little bit more. Uh, that's something we keep hearing in our reporting from people that work for him now at the White House, that he likes to have his aides uh, foster rivalries with one another. He thinks that it puts people on their toes. It keeps them competitive, keeps them working hard to please him. And when an aide gets too high, he likes to sort of put him in his place. Did you experience that working for him? And in what way do you see that uh, now as you're watching what's happening inside the White House? You know, one of the things I said to uh, my good friend Steve Bannon when all that publicity was coming out in the beginning of the administration towards the end of the campaign, you know, I, I said to Steve, I said, Steve, you know, the president's going to tell you he doesn't mind when it's there, but trust me, there's going to be a residual lagging of, you know, effect that when things aren't working out or when you're underperforming, you're going to hear about that as well. Um, I think there's also a misnomer that uh, Jared is not treated like a regular employee at the White House. Trust me, I think that uh, the president's going to expect Jared to perform. I actually think Jared will perform very well. What What makes you think that about Jared? That he is going to perform well? No, that he's treated as a regular employee. He's, after all, the, the president's son-in-law, and he's the, the husband of Ivanka, who I, I don't think it's any secret that Ivanka is his favorite child. <laughs> so what makes you think he's treated like a normal staffer? Because, uh, because he's working for the president and he's going to have to produce. Look, Jared, from what I understand throughout the campaign, you know, he was treated like another employee in terms of receiving criticism and um, sometimes you know, having to quote-unquote take it from the president as well. But no, certainly, look, I think Jared would tell you, too, that no, no job is secure in the White House. If, in fact, if I was advising Jared, I would have said, Jared, I, you know, this is, it, it's very nice. I understand, you know, you think you, you can serve the country, but just from a point of view of what's best for you, maybe you don't want to go in, right? Because you can never have a falling out or be fired. So I think that just based on the responsibilities he's taken and based on the president depending on him, look, the president depended on me and there were times I didn't perform for him. And I think it was one of the reasons why when I left the campaign in late August of 2015, 
Uh, it wasn't great circumstances. I had a lawsuit with him, but we reconciled before he went into office. One of the things he's always going to tell people is he's also very truthful with people. When you work with him or after you work with him, and one of the things he's always said to me is you have great potential. I expect you to succeed in life. And, uh, you know, when he spends a lot of time with you and gives you these great responsibilities, he's training you. Sam, can we just um, go over a couple of the key players in the White House that that we keep hearing so much about and and reporting a lot about? And I'm just going to rattle off a few of these names. And can you help kind of explain the the map here? Who who does what? What are the the factions to the extent that there are factions? And how does does President Trump organize this? So you've got the chief of staff, Reince Priebus, the chief strategist, Steve Bannon, the senior advisor, Jared Kushner, uh, the counselor, Kellyanne Conway, Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, who's playing a big role with an office in the West Wing, and then Gary Cohn, who's the National Economic uh, Council director and, and the former head of Goldman Sachs. Right. So I think that you have uh, different points of view there, worldviews. Um, you have different ideas on how to operate in D.C., which I think is very healthy uh, to one extent. On the other extent, I think that if you're going to have a Republican White House, and I've, been, uh, and I've been open and honest about this, look, Republicans and Democrats are cyclical, right? We don't get these. We get these once every eight years. It's the way it works. And it's very important at the beginning of the presidency uh, to set the agenda, which is why I was very critical of the fact and I, of the decision not only to bring in Gary Cohn, who's a liberal, who's a Democrat, for all I know, he voted for Hillary Clinton, and not to bring in somebody that's a real supply sider uh, in Larry Kudlow, for instance. One thing about the president as well is he becomes very familiar with his inner circle, and it's always a challenge for you as an employee of his to remember that you have to, that you're working for him and you have to produce and yes you can go in there and sit with him and you can go to him with any problem I've gone to him with personal problems you know his door is always open but you're working for him and he's your boss he's the boss as he like to be called so I think that that's an issue as well I think that they're all going to have to adjust I mean I think Kellyanne would be honest to say that her role has changed a little as they've gone on. And I think, by the way, Phil, you know, a lot of this stuff, and I know you guys, when you write your articles and you have, you, you list them, by the way. I love how you list. We've spoken to 20. We've spoken to 22. We've spoken to 16 for this. Sometimes we don't know how these inner dynamics actually are when you're there or when we're not in the inside, because a lot of it becomes personal, too, in terms of your attachment to Donald Trump. So, you're going to have this great relationship and affinity with him, and he's such a gregarious, bigger-than-life guy. Um, but, you know, he's got a job to do, too, and he's got to have times when you're not going to see him for a couple days, and he's going to be dealing with uh, your colleagues, and you're going to get a little jealous, honestly. I, uh, that was always an issue with Lewandowski and me when I was there, you know, in terms of access, traveling with him, things like that. From the outside, you know, all of this looks so chaotic. Uh, it seems like there's constant turmoil and tumult in the inner circle where people are fighting over ideology or access to the president or trying to curry favor or forming factions and rivalries. But but you've worked with Donald Trump for so many years. In, in what way is this the environment that he thrives on? I mean, people say he likes to manage chaos. Well, once again, I think you, you referenced it before. He certainly likes to play people off of each other. And I think he does that is to make sure that you can perform mm-hmm. well. 
and then um, it'll become an atmosphere where it's going to become hyper-competitive. Part of the problem, too, one thing I've said publicly you always have to be careful about is there still is only one Donald Trump, and he's such a big, uh, bigger-than-life figure, and you're going to start thinking you're, you're like him, but you're not. And, you know, we've all made that mistake, and I think it's a mistake that hurt me. I think it's a mistake that hurt Corey. And, I, you know, I warn my friends in the administration, always be careful about that as well. But you also, one thing we haven't talked to about is Manager Stiles, he brings people back a lot. He's kind of like George Steinbrenner. I, in fact, was fired by him, I think, four times and rehired. So, you know, some of them were temporary. So on that note, um, pull back the curtain a little bit. Like, tell us a story about what he was like as a manager, you know, whether it was it had to do with a rivalry you might have had with somebody else on the staff or or just something that that can illustrate uh, what he's like behind the scenes as somebody's boss. You know, I understand the way some people see him and, and this is politics and just in general there. But there very there really is a softer side to Donald Trump. He always remembers. So you think sometimes he's not listening to you if you're talking about something personal with him. I had to give a speech once, and um, I was telling him how I, how I was worried about it, this and that. He had a lot on his mind, and then we, we moved off the subject. And then one day I get a letter in the mail from him saying, I've asked around how your speech went. I'm very proud of you. It did well. And he could have just called me on the phone and said that. The letter I still have, or uh, I think uh, when he had one, I sent the letter to him. I remember I hadn't spoken to him for over 14 months or so. Um, I was speaking to Steve a little while Steve was went into the campaign, but we didn't end on good terms. He had a lawsuit against me, and um, one day I uh, one day he called me just out of the blue in January, and. Uh, and he said, you know, I've got my press conference the next day. What do you think I should do? What do you, he goes, how are you doing, uh, Sam, my Sam, this or that? You know, so, um, you know, he's a guy you're always going to have a special uh, place with when you work for him. So there's been some reporting that Steve Bannon has, has taken the blame for a lot of early missteps in the administration. Is that true? Can you t- tell us a little bit more about that? And have there been consequences that, that Bannon has faced as a result? Yeah, so Steve Bannon has shouldered some of the blame, but I think that's in large part because his rivals inside the White House are pointing their fingers at him. Um, he's not solely responsible for all of uh, all of these early missteps in the administration, of course. He was very involved in the travel ban, and that was a problem, but he was not the only one involved. Uh, he was obviously not the only one pushing for the health care uh, bill that ended up failing in, in really embarrassing fashion for the White House and for Hill Republicans. Uh, but he shouldered some of that blame. I, I think where Steve Bannon got off course, though, is less in uh, the mistakes of the administration and more in the public profile that created uh, externally about him. Uh, he was on the cover of Time magazine, labeled the great manipulator. And uh, my sources tell me that really bothered President Trump. He he doesn't like to be uh, to have a rival for the spotlight. And uh, there became a narrative. We saw it on Saturday Night Live. We saw it in a lot of news media reports, including here at the Washington Post, that Bannon was sort of a shadow president, that he was the one calling all the shots and, and Trump was just following his direction. 
and that just uh, it, it just gnawed at Trump. He couldn't uh, get that out of his mind, and it built over time cumulatively to the point where Trump felt like he had to take Bannon down a couple notches. And we saw that last week in some interviews that President Trump gave where he said, you know, Steve is, is just a guy who works for me, <laughs> and Steve is just one of my staffers, and really tried to, uh, tried to humiliate Steve Bannon. And what about Stephen Miller? Where does Stephen Miller fall in this? So Stephen Miller's a really interesting figure. He's 31 years old. He's uh, the youngest senior aide in the White House, and he heads up policy. He's the policy advisor. He had worked for Senator Jeff Sessions. He's a, a populist by nature, a nationalist, uh, really was trying to drive Trump, uh, his immigration policies early on in the campaign. He had been allied with Steve Bannon and, and continues to be allied with Steve Bannon, but he's also very well liked by Jared Kushner. He's sort of a bridge between these two worlds. So President Trump isn't actually the very first president to face turmoil within the White House, to face some leadership challenges. So I spoke to Jonathan Alter, and he's a columnist and historian. He talked to us a little bit about the challenges faced by presidents like Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Here's Jonathan. Carter made the mistake of not hiring a chief of staff when he first became president. Carter thought he could have what uh, they called a spokes on the wheel system of management where, you know, a bunch of different spokes, different aides and cabinet secretaries would all report to the person at the center who was him. It did not work well in practice. Even when there's a strong chief of staff like James Baker for Ronald Reagan, he was in what they called a triumvirate in 1981 with Edwin Meese and Michael Beaver, and the three of them kind of shared power. So there's a precedent for that as well. Was that successful? Was that considered successful? And if so, why did that system seem to work for Reagan, but thus far in the Trump administration, it has not seemed to work here? Well, in the Reagan administration, they were blessed by a by the consensus of Washington, the, the best chief of staff in the modern era, and that was James A. Baker, who had originally been uh, campaign manager for Vice President George Bush. And so he had not been an original Reaganite, but Reagan was smart enough after he was elected to recognize Baker's management talent. And Baker uh, was able to create a very, very smooth-running White House. And he understood that Deaver and Meese each had you know, their own important roles and there was enough power to go around. He didn't feel it was a zero-sum game, that more, more power for, for them meant less for him, which is what a good manager does. By contrast, the Trump administration ha- has a president who is so unpredictable in his policy ideas that the people on his team don't have any compass. So it's hard to know what the president's policy is. And you're going to have, in that case, a lot of people who are going to jockey for position. Let's talk a little bit about that jockeying for positions. How common is it for there to be this internal sort of White House power struggle among the staff? Is this something that in your research you've seen commonly throughout history? Is it to a larger extent now than it has been in the past? I think I think it is worse under Trump than under most administrations. Major players in the White House often have a relatively short uh, 
shelf life. Bill Clinton had a problem with his friend from kindergarten, Mac McClarty, and realized fairly early on that he didn't have enough experience to be White House Chief of Staff. Eventually, uh, Jimmy Carter realized that um, he needed a Chief of Staff, and so he made Hamilton Jordan his Chief of Staff, and uh, Jordan um, had some scuffling with Jack Watson, who ended up being Carter's last Chief of Staff, and they had varying power centers. They had a kind of a power struggle during the transition, and Jordan won that. So you have that jockeying that takes place in the transition. Then when everybody gets into their jobs, then really the question becomes, who's in what meeting? And so power gets measured that way. And then who's leaking about who? Right. So historically, how does all of this tension and infighting affect the effectiveness of an administration? Have we seen examples in history where it's been an impediment to governing? Or is it really just, you know, kind of noise that comes along with being in power? I don't think the fact that the chief of staff has to, uh, you know, watch his back can necessarily directly uh, impact policymaking. But, you know, I can give you many examples of where the strong feelings of various aides, you know, became very influential with the president. And to the extent that they were in favor, out of favor with the president at a particular time, affected policymaking. Is Trump responsible for kind of the lack of cohesion and clarity that we see within his White House? Is he the person that is creating this? Is he somebody who can't necessarily contain it? How much of this lies? How much of this responsibility lies with him? I would say all of the responsibility lies with him. He's the boss. He likes being the boss. Uh, But part of being the boss means you're responsible for the system that you've built and for uh, its effectiveness. And there have been a lot of problems in these first hundred days and a lot of Uh, you know, difficult, chaotic moments. And uh, he bears the responsibility for that, in part because he's so indecisive as a leader. You know, he he will take decisive action on something like Syria, uh, but he also allows these factions to to fester within his White House. He likes it. He fosters it um, and, and kind of cultivates these rivalries. And, you know, he sees that the benefits outweigh the negatives in his view. But I think when you look at it from the outside, it just seems like constant disorder and turmoil and chaos. And that's been a struggle. Uh, for the people inside the White House who would prefer to have a more orderly, uh, systematic structure. So you spoke a little bit about the fact that this is kind of an ideological divide, that there, you know, these really are ideological differences. Is there a certain kind of leadership that's required or a sense of mission from a president that can bring together these ideological divides that can find ways to kind of manage these, these competing factions? You know, it's an interesting question. The way President Trump likes... Uh, for this divide uh, to be productive for him is that he's not an ideologue himself. He doesn't really have uh, core philosophies. He he doesn't have an, an ideological project, an agenda that he's trying to pursue in the White House. Rather, he likes to have smart people from different points of view who can come to him and debate the issues in front of him, and he'll make a choice uh, every day, given the environment that he's in, given the political pressures that he's facing, given the arguments pro and con uh, on each of these issues. And so he likes having these rivalries uh, inside his White House. He thinks it makes the ideas better, and, and frankly, 
I think he likes to have uh, choices. He likes to have options to choose from. He didn't come into office with an agenda and a checklist of uh, ideologically where he wants to take things. He's very difficult, I think, for us to define. And so in that sense, this is a, a system that he thinks works for him. Is any of this personality driven when you think about Steve Bannon, for example, he comes from a very different background than Jared Kushner. Um, so is any of this personality driven or is most of it really based on sort of pushing an ideological agenda? You know, ideology is at the heart of it, but it's also personality driven. These are people who are spending, you know, 16, 18 hours a day uh, in each other's company. The West Wing of the White House is a pretty small uh, office environment and, and you're kind of tripping over each other all the time. And these personalities don't always match. Um, Steve Bannon is probably twice Jared Kushner's age. He has completely different life experiences. He's served in the Navy, uh, but he's also been sort of a pirate, if you will. He's, he's been on the outside at Breitbart News, really trying to shake up um, the establishment. And Jared Kushner, uh, just in his presentation and his style and his own personal background, represents so much of the status quo. He's sort of a you know, you know, well-bred uh, young businessman who who has had a lot of success at a young age, and I, you know, I think part of the clash there is personality. Yeah, makes me wonder if Steve Bannon would have put the vest over his suit jacket, or if he would have taken his suit jacket off. I'm fairly certain Steve Bannon would have never worn a blazer to Iraq. <laughs> that sounds about right. So anyway, Trump seems to take advice from people who he spoke to most recently, which means that sometimes his policies don't necessarily reflect one ideology. But who should his policies speak to if he wants to get reelected? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's the answer is basically both. Uh, but I think to start with, he's going to have to ignite his base. He can't win re-election unless he can keep his movement galvanized. And that's been a challenge for him. And so what that means is creating policies that will create uh, more jobs and higher wages in some of these communities where the uh, quote-unquote forgotten men and women live. Uh, these are places in the Midwest, in the industrial Midwest, I mean, towns that have been ravaged by the global trends in, in the economy. And, and Trump is trying to reverse that. Uh, that's going to be very hard to do. Recently, we've seen Trump appoint some more Bush-era Republicans to key positions, not necessarily White House positions, but positions around other parts of the government. Is this a sign that Trump is becoming more moderate and more mainstream? Uh, in, in part, it is, yes. Uh, but it's also a natural thing to happen because Trump didn't have a large team around him already. He, Unlike Hillary Clinton, he didn't have a government in waiting. There were not thousands of people who were waiting for their jobs, who you sort of knew where they would get appointed and and you just flip the switch and they go. Trump had like maybe 150 staffers on his campaign. There just weren't a lot of folks for him to place into the government. So as he looks uh, to expand his team and bring in new faces, uh, a lot of the people he's bringing on have past government experience. They're from the Bush, Bush administration. And uh, I, you know, I think he thinks it's valuable to have some of them there. Yeah, it's particularly fascinating because Trump did a lot of criticizing of George W. Bush on the campaign trail and especially a lot of criticizing of his opponent at the time, Jeb Bush. So to see that some of those people that would have been tied to, to Jeb Bush's potentially his administration and people that were tied to the George W. Bush administration now in positions of power, just it's just an interesting revelation. It sure is. We pay a lot of attention, a lot of attention to what's going on inside the White House. We live in Washington, D.C. You cover this. But do voters feel the impact of what seems to be White House infighting? Are they paying attention to this? Do they feel it? Will it impact them directly? 
I don't know that they feel it in their daily lives, uh, but they're paying attention. I, we know here at The Post, our, our stories about the White House staff have tremendous audiences. So many people are engaged in this. It's the subject of skits on late night TV. It, it drives cable news. And just from my personal uh, standpoint, when I talk to people about what I do and they're not political, the first thing they ask about is Sean Spicer and Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. I mean, these aides are national celebrities, and there are a lot of people around the country who are paying attention and following all the twists and turns in the intrigue. So really, we're going to boil this down to our final question here, and it is the most critical one, which is how do all of these internal White House staff conflicts affect Trump's ability to govern? Essentially, can he do that? And can he successfully govern with infighting among his White House staff at this scale? It becomes so much harder to govern when you have this level of infighting, in part because your senior staffers are coming to work every day thinking about how to undermine one another. They're worried about whether they're going to get fired. They're spending their time trying to be in front of the president physically uh, to remind him that they're there and and curry favor with him. And every time they're doing that, they're not governing. They're not uh, working with Congress to create deals on some of this legislation. They're not overseeing the implementation of policies in the departments. I mean, the chief of staff, Reince Priebus, for example, instead of spending most most of his day in his office uh, managing his team, running his government, uh, he's in the Oval Office with the president trying to make sure that he hears everything and sees everything and, and, you know, is focused very internally on preserving his own reputation and standing with the president, um, which is, of course, essential for him to do well in his job based on how Trump, the president, has set it up. Uh, but it does inhibit sort of effective uh, governing. This is the, the federal government is an enormous, uh, enormous organization. There are so many different agencies and departments to oversee, and, and it's these people's jobs to, to run that, uh, not to manage their own you know, profiles and reputations and relationships internally. Yeah, that's fascinating. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. You guys can follow Phil Rucker on Twitter at Phil. What is your Twitter handle? It's Philip Rucker with one L, P-H-I-L-I-P-R-U-C-K-E-R. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Mikes at A-L-L-I-S-O-N-M-I-C-H-S. In the meantime, though, you should subscribe to this podcast if you're not already subscribed, because next week we have a big episode coming. That episode will be dedicated to Trump's first 100 days in office, and you're not going to want to miss it. And also in the meantime, you should share this episode. Share it with your friends if you like it. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Send me an email. Share it on Twitter. Use all the networks, all the means. It definitely helps. It goes a long way. Thank you guys so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the genius Carol Alderman with design direction from Rachel Orr. Our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio. 